Welcome to the Mini of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world, exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, from an intimately personal perspective amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Ferrarello, received her PhD in philosophy from a Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor of philosophy at California State University, East Bay, and she is also a philosophical counselor. All right. Good morning, everybody. Well, good morning for me. Good evening for you, Maren. Uh, today, we have uh, the great pleasure to host uh, our interview with uh, Maren Berle. Uh, she is uh, a professor uh, at the philosophy at the Erasmus School of Philosophy uh, in the Netherlands. Originally, she's from Germany. Um, uh, I would like to start from the informal bio that uh, your friend and colleague wrote for you. It feels uh, more uh, homey. Uh, so when I asked Maren to send me, you know, a bio to to tell us uh, a little about herself, uh, uh, Maren shared this um, this nice piece with us. So Maren Berle, aka Super Maren, because that was the email that you were using at the time, uh, just to give yourself strength uh, in uh, in the navigation of uh, life insecurities and so on. Is a wonderful philosopher from the Black Forest, and so you're originally from. From, uh, Germany, who now works uh, at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Uh, she likes to dance, uh, to listen to music, and to run. Everything else is pointless. Uh, she works uh, on normality, Freud knows why, uh, attention, and the body. I, I really enjoyed uh, reading uh, this bio. It feels um, real. And uh, yeah, full, yeah, full credit to Maxime Doyon for this. Uh, for exactly. This Thank you. And Maxime Doyon is uh, the author uh, of uh, this sweet bio. So um, let's start from, um, from you. I mean, why, how did it happen that so young uh, you managed to arrive? Uh, to teach philosophy in a prestigious university as this one. What is philosophy for you? How did it happen that you started on this path? Actually, I'm not that young anymore, and I'm quite old for an assistant <laughs> professor. So I, I hopefully will get my tenure next year, but I'm 42. Huh? And a lot of the assistant professors actually in the United States and also in the Netherlands are a lot younger than I am. Mm -hmm. so, but uh, so I was a little bit late in everything I did, uh, <laughs> apart from maybe dancing and, and singing and and, uh, and reading and speaking. So I actually had to repeat one class in school. I, mm -hmm. I, I took longer to study because, yeah, um, I'm, I'm from a non-academic background and I have no, no, let's say, examples in my family and, and, and um, surrounding that have, have studied before. So I was a little bit shy and didn't know how to do study and what to study. Uh, so it took me quite a while um, yeah, to even be uh, get the courage to, to see a professor or go to the library. Um, mm. So, so my, my first, my bachelor study, so to say, back in Germany, this was a magister study, 
so you don't have a bachelor and a master, but you have a, a sort of um, uh, exam in the middle. Um, they call it Swishen Prüfung or in between exam. So the, the first part of my study took me um, um, twice as much as the second part. And then my PhD actually went only, and uh, so I, I finished this in three years. Um, oh, wow. All in all, um, in between, I always had to figure out how to finance myself, how to finance the passion of philosophy. So I, I worked in between, also in between my master and my PhD. Uh, I did internships and worked and worked as a secretary uh, in universities and administrative jobs. So that actually added up so um, mm -hmm. that I'm quite... Um, uh, yeah, that I'm quite a late bloomer, so to say. But maybe I have the advantage or disadvantage in our uh, profession that I, um, at least from a distance, seem younger than I am. Or it does not. Uh, it's not so obvious that I'm actually yeah. no actually quite, quite uh, when it comes to age quite senior uh, as an assistant professor. Yeah. Maybe yeah. dancing, uh, running, uh, uh, and uh, all these physical activities keeping you young and active. What uh, what kind of pleasure do you gather uh, from from this activity? I mean, uh, how how much space do they take in your life? I mean, uh, I always compare philosophy to running, for example. So it's mm. it's much easier with running than with dancing. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's say the Kantian part of me uh, is a runner and a philosopher uh, because in running and, and, and philosophizing you are confronted with, with your limits mm. so yeah you have to learn to deal with your bodily or your mental limits to handle them um, yeah and you, you learn to be patient and to be modest um, and I think that's, that's pretty much uh, um, you have the same experiences, mental experience with the limits of your own uh, thinking than with the limits when you run a mar marathon, for example, of your own body. And then the dancing part would be the more creative part, I think, the more spontaneous part. Although if, you are, uh, if you're a ballet dancer, you know that's all, all about strict rules and discipline. Mm -hmm. um, and only if you are, have this as a basis then you can you have the freedom to to improvise and to to dance spontane more spontaneously. Which philosopher, yeah. uh, which philosopher would you combine with the dance then? <laughs> Since, dance. Uh, mm. Let's see. I mean, Nietzsche and Foucault Nietzsche. may mm. be quite experiment, uh, yeah, quite playful in what they are doing and quite experimenting. Mm -hmm. um, and I would rather, with discipline, I would rather associate uh, Husserl or Kant. But I think they are, they are only good in, uh, if you combine them. So I tr always try to combine them because, yeah, you need a certain kind of toolkit, also in philosophy and, and analytic toolkit, a little bit of discipline and, and concepts. Yeah, you have to be able mm -hmm. to identify concepts, criticize them, or and then to throw them away and make new ones. But I think you first have to have an analytic toolkit before you can be creative in a way that's also understandable and accessible to other to others. Um, yeah. yeah. So I have these two souls in my um, in my chest, which would be the more yeah classical German philosophers like Kant and Husserl, and then the more playful. But um, they're surely more playful um, um, authors and or philosophers. 
um, I would also say similar to Wow would be also mm. more play. Why so? Yeah. yeah, because she she was she never wanted to be a philosopher. She always uh, uh, said she was a writer, and mm. she had a, a really good the philosophical theory. But she kind of um, is able to put that in a in, in a story. So all her ethics is put into the stories of her wonderful books and and and, and not only in her theoretical um, um, philosophical works, so to say. Do you have and, a favorite book uh, uh, of Simone de Beauvoir or that you feel like? Uh... Yeah, actually, um, I like the, the ethics of ambiguity, although it's not mm. not so playful, but more spotted. Mm -hmm. But it's about ambiguity, and I think this is a little bit the counterpart of, uh, of spontaneity and, and, and creativity, because I think you could say, because we are, our nature or existence is so ambiguous, that is, for her, active and passive, we are at the same time an object thrown into the world, but also, also it's, yeah, an active subject that acts in the world. We are uh, embedded in time, space, and history. Uh, so we are situated and cannot choose where we are born um, or what our capacities are. But at the same time, we are also active and have freedom and responsibility. So in all these, these tensions, ambiguities, so we are material, but also we have mind and freedom. We are vulnerable. Um, we get affected by others. We can affect others. And all these things, what she calls ambiguity, and especially also the vulnerable or uh, finite parts um, of our existence, I think they are um, the precondition to be created because otherwise, why should, why should we have the need to be created? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, um, and also this tension uh, creates a certain kind of, yeah, maybe playfulness, the need to be experimental, but also to react, to adapt to changing situations quickly. And spontaneously. Look, speaking okay. of uh, uh, reacting to situations quickly, uh, in um, in your presentation, I read a very interesting story that uh, you shared with me. Thank you uh, about uh, how you ended up studying philosophy. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, and it's curious. Uh, it caught my attention because I know that you study on the notion of attention. Uh, that you recently wrote about attention. Why do we play? Do we pay attention to something instead of something else? And uh, the event that uh, somehow changed your life, because uh, then you started doing philosophy, was uh, somehow out of uh, your radar, out of your uh, attention, because it was uh, a friend of yours that uh, actually introduced you to to philosophy, to study philosophy for real. Do you want to share with yeah. us a story, tell us something? Um, as I said, I, 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 um, so normally if you ask someone, yeah, why do you came to philosophy, then you, you often hear this, it was my destiny. I read Kant already when I was 12. <laughs> um, and for me, I totally came there by chance. So it was a totally ar arbitrary and actually banal story and actually others made me aware of philosophy, because as I said, 
Um, and I think also this is a problem. I wrote especially on attention because I have a big problem with attention myself. So I'm, I'm working on that. So I'm pretty much self-absorbed and I'm mind wandering all the time. Um, so I'm, I'm working hard on being more, so I'm, I'm very responsive. I get affected by everything, but on, on, yeah, to, to be more focused also in, um, uh, in interaction with other people. But the question, uh, so the story goes that I had actually not philosophy at school. Uh, I, I don't come from a family or background where you read actual books. So we had books, but they were mainly popular books, uh, random books. Um, so I myself uh, loved reading, but I read mostly science fiction and Stephen King books. So I, I did not have any, um, uh, yeah, any further connection. The first connection I had was in school when I, I, I um, took the ethics class. So in, in, in my little school in, in, in Neustadt in the Black Forest, uh, there's no philosophy course, but if you don't want to take the religion class, you can choose for the ethics class. So it's actually um, was not a decision by interest, but I thought, no, I'm, I'm, religion is boring. I don't want to do that anymore. And I'm a rebellious 16 years old. Uh, so I took the ethics class and I, of course, we read a little bit Kant, Aristotle and utilitarism. So mainly uh, typical ethical cases and approaches. Um, but actually two friends and, um, brought me to, to, to the decision to, um, to actually study philosophy. Um, because otherwise I probably would have studied literature because I was good in German literature at school and I had no idea about the other possibilities you could study. And I didn't know what philosophy was or mm -hmm. I, I was, I did not dare to study law or psychology because these were so high level things mm -hmm. I thought I'm not good at that my I'm not intel intelligent enough or I will not be able to to succeed in there mm -hmm. and then the other friend of mine she crossed my path when I had to repeat class and she was the first one who actually believed and uh, and me a little bit so she was uh, the best of the class and she was in a group uh, called St uh, storming brain so she had in a group for people with high IQs and she said yeah Marin uh, you, you should go and study this. You, you are intelligent. You should, should do that. And she actually, um, yeah, so I, I, we have had the last two classes uh, in high school together and we were then best friends and discussed a lot. Um, and I really started then reading and she was also the one who registered me in Freiburg because at that time I was so chaotic. I was on vacation. We're on vacation. And, and we phoned, I gave her a little thing where I said, yeah, you have the, the right to register me. And she registered me and then she phoned. I, so, um, um, yeah, I wanted to do literature as main. And she said, no, there's a little essay, uh, uh, so you cannot do that. Uh, should I put philosophy at your first major? And I said, yes, please do that on the phone. <laughs> and so that's all. So, and then as a second uh, um, discipline, she, she, or as to the two minors, she chose then literature and historical anthropology because she did the same. And I was so happy with that choice. But actually, she made that choice for me. And now she is still also in academia, but she's in the history of medicine. Um, and she was the most intelligent person I know. Uh, and I, I almost feel guilty that I'm, I have now an assistant professorship and I don't know if she has a permanent contract in philosophy, but she was the one 
who actually registered me and, and yeah, brought, yeah, kind of helped me to realize uh, starting this in the first place. Um, because I would never have seen myself as a philosophy, especially not in Friday, which has such a tradition. Um, and then you come as a little, uh, a little girl from a little town and yeah, never heard about all those philosophers or even um, not in the beginning starting to study there it was was a big big thing for me and it was not easy in the, in the in the first years i did not even dare to say something in a course uh, i can imagine but yeah luckily that changed quite a bit um, and i'm very happy with my choice i never uh, had a second thought about it so it was my passion from the beginning yeah well, we are so very I'm, grateful to your friend as well. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm in this very, very grateful. Yeah. And look, what are the philosophers that told you, oh, okay, this is my past. I mean, I, I feel what they are saying. I come from this little town. I come from this family. Nevertheless, these philosophers can talk to me. I can relate to what they're saying. Who are they? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's, I think, the fascination of philosophy, even in, in, in our days where we now critically look at all those, um, let's say, white male philosophers and all the, the women that didn't have a place. And, uh, and we see how limited the canon we have is. But still, if you see it like this, it's still fascinating that you could still um, yeah, find something of yourself in them, even though all those uh, non-diverse circumstances. And um, I, I read so many beautiful books. The first one was Platon's Symposium. I could find, so the whole idea that, that philosophizing is born out of a certain feeling of lack, mm. uh, but also desire to overcome that lack, that you are always in between. You know that you, you are not perfect and that you don't know anything, but that gives you this desire to want to know. But it's not that you're stupid. You have to be as wise to be actually aware that you don't know enough. So this makes you desire. So I, I love that book. Uh, and although it's a, a classic and even has nothing to do with my life world um, of, uh, of yeah, the, the, where, where I come from, not at all. And the same was true for, for a lot of books. Uh, I mentioned Beauvoir, Mm -hmm. But also Rousseau um, and Foucault um, and, and, yeah. and Butler, Bodies That Matter, that was later in my study, actually in historical anthropology. So we had no Butler in philosophy in Freiburg back then. It was, uh, I think that changed as well. Um, yeah, you, you, you find a link because the questions you have, am I normal? Am I, um, am I good? Um, or questions like, and who saw a very basic question, what is perception? Um, what is, um, yeah, why is my experience of something normal or not? Um, what kind of role does time play your body? I mean, these are so, so general questions, I think that you can link them to nearly everyone. Or, at least uh, it was never a problem problem for me to 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 see a link or to um, mm -hmm. be passionate about that. Yeah. And so, what is normal? What what did you gather so far? 
I don't know. I mean, it's a big topic. And uh-huh. uh, obviously, uh, it's, a, it's a problem for me because uh, I always felt a little bit different. I felt uh, in the philosophy business different because uh, it was so, because I, I did not know their, their language, their academic habitus. I did not know the context. What is a faculty? What is all these different terms? And um, so I felt a little bit different there. I still feel, although it's here in the Netherlands, you have less of a academic hierarchy and habitus. So it's, yeah. And I have a lot of colleagues who are also working class backgrounds and not academic backgrounds. Um, and I also feel very, very unnormal in my own family because my political opinion, because I'm an academic, they're all a lot of tensions and you have to translate the whole time. You wrote that uh, your father didn't come to your PhD. No. Well, my, my dad uh, doesn't uh, like those academic people and these elites. So he, 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 we had a nice lunch afterwards, but he rejected to come to the official ceremony. Yes. And he still has no high opinion. So it's a, it's a, it's a typical um, skepticism against science and uh, people of whom he thinks they, they feel or they feel that they are something better or that they know something better. Um, and I'm still discussed with my parents a lot about this, but I had to accept this and it, it's okay. So, and I still see, I mean, it's also a blessing, so to say, that um, for me in, in my environment, uh, using a gender neutral or gender sensitive language is something um, self-evident. For my, my dad, this is something, uh, this is a reason because in his, uh, I think he's playing, he's doing sports and someone on a poster used this kind of gender little star in Germany. Mm-hmm. This. And this was a reason for him to refuse to, um, to, to, to support this kind of sport group oh, wow. as all of his friends. So they make jokes about it. They hate it, but they don't even know what the term gender actually means. So if you explain it to them and if you say, I mean, it's the, the attempt not to exclude or not to say you have to say this and how you speak is not right. It's the little attempt to make a language more inclusive so that more people feel feel heard and seen and included. And it's such a, if this is possible with such a small effort, why shouldn't we do that? Why mm-hmm. is there a reason to not do this? I mean, it's not an ideology, it's not a polarization, it's not about politics, it's just about this little thing. Inclusion. Um, trying to include more and trying to, it's just a small effort. It does not hurt you. It does not take anything away from you. Um, And I think that, yeah, these kind of little debates and translations is that I I feel not normal in my family. I feel not normal in philosophy. And I feel also not normal in my my relationship because my partner is a non-philosopher. And um, I'm a very unpractical person and yeah, absorbed and I miss things here and there and he's really tidy and really um, focused and attentive. Um, and he gives me often, and I'm, I'm happy for this, the feeling, know how you, how you and you maybe also your colleagues, how you are acting that's far from, from normal sometimes. So I have the sensitivity the whole time. And of course, I'm so privileged. There are people who actually have the experience being not normal. So these are very little privileged experience of mine. Uh, but at least they, they gave me um, 
a little motivation to find out what, what normal is. And yeah, I'm still doing research on it and I cannot give you a solution, but I think um, so, so far I come. So you cannot pin it down because normality is not some, it's not a fixed thing. There's something we have to work on together because a proper normality is a normality that is shared. Um, and it's not something you can keep or something that's in the past and that you have to just keep because the world is changing, we are changing and normality means in a way that uh, it's, we share the same common sense or the same bottom, the same world, um, where, which is valid for all. It's related also to objectivity, but also um, that what we experience is in accordance to what we, we, we do and what others do. So it's, it's most of all work and it's changing the whole time. And I would make a, a very small difference between um, what I find in phenomenology. Uh, in, and if you speak about normality from a phenological perspective, it's not about what is normal, but um, what, how you feel normal or how you experience normally. Mm -hmm. In a continuous way, for example, in a not fragmented way. Um, Can you tell us uh, why phenomenology tells us so to bring up to speed our listeners? Why phenomenology? Yeah. What is phenomenology and why phenomenology offers this solution about normality? I think phenomenology, I cannot make a short why. So I love phenomenology, but I'm not uncritical about it. I think what phenomenology can offer offer us is that it tries to understand things like objectivity um, not apart or independent of subjectivity but tries to understand it within subjectivity we are all kind of somehow individuals and have a specific limited perspective but still we have something we share and still we say that's one world or we have something that we call objective mm -hmm. and how do we come to this it must be as Husserl said, something we can experience. So there must be within the experience a difference between an illusion and something uh, that we call objective, something that's only in our heads and something that's transcendent, that means ex uh, is, is, is its own being, is, uh, exists outside and independently of us. And he tries in this detailed, complicated analysis to show that these little hints are to be found within experience. So it's not that experience is here and that's not reliable and not, not important. And here is objective science, but there is something within experience that gives us a hint and can show, bring us to objectivity. And that's also with normality because lived normality is something, is not, you can say there's a represented normality, what is normal in your society, in your history. If you would say, yeah, we, for us only heterosexual relations uh, or, women and men who are strictly uh, um, divided and defined mm -hmm. as opposite, that is normal. But it's timely and that's historically. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I would call a represented normality. And this is changing, of course, as the values and norms are changing. And there's the level of lived normality. It's how you, if you experience something normally that is continuously in accordance with others, with what you have just experienced before, And of course, these two levels are not, not, they are interrelated. So what is represented in a society as normal might influence if you feel normally, 
and vice versa. But I think it makes sense to to distinguish the two, and it makes all especially sense to put this first person perspective: how you experience something, and why uh, we experience something as continuous or making sense, and other things not uh, is really important if you want to tackle these kind of problems. Um, but I don't want. I would always combine both perspectives. So if I only speak about my experience or experience, it is not enough, of course. And even for, for the phenomenologists, this would be not enough. They would like to have what are the conditions of experience, what are what do we all have in common in our experiences. And then you need people like yeah, Nietzsche Foucault uh, or, or others, uh, critical phenomenologists, uh, Judith Butler, other theorists. I mean, I, I forget a lot of them, of course. Um, to tell you exactly, I'll give you an analysis of a specific situation, of a specific situation of domination, of, of historical of, of violence, which lets you see, okay, there are relevant differences. So, we are all being situated, but this being situated does not mean for everyone the same. Yeah. Um, does not mean that we all have the same possibilities and starting points. Um, and for some um, embodiment or everything could be very enabling, but and for others, this could be very constraining depending on the situation and circumstances. So I think this historical and concrete um, perspective is really relevant also for phenomenology too. To counterbalance it, so to say. Do you think there is a connection between the normality and attention? <laughs> of course. <laughs> is there a line here? In your well, I came, yeah, I, I did my PhD on attention, also in cognitive uh, psychology, uh-huh. and actually it brought me to the topic of normality because um, um, so what you think is normal depends also on your attention and your attention, the way you attend to something, what you see and what you don't see is, uh, yeah, changes uh, in, within cultures, interests, if you are hungry or not hungry. I mean, there's so many psychological experiments, what you see in a supermarket when you're hungry, when you attend to and when you're not hungry and how you can manipulate that. And what you don't see or what you, so you could, could say, it's a difficult relation because what you see more often is more normal to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get used to it, but also um, you only have attention for things that are not normal. So you own, that's the thing that, that, that gets or attracts your attention, everything that deviates from what you expected. Mm. So you can also say that's why this, this, uh, this um, if you expect, for example, to, to use a, Simple example uh, from my uh, from my environment. So my dad, for example, thinks that women are not able to park the car in, a, in the right way. So if you expect this, of course, you will only attend or be aware of these kind of occasions, and that will in turn confirm what you already thought. Um, but sometimes um, you could say this is a mechanism. But sometimes you could also say uh, if he then. It could also be that something totally surprises you because you didn't expect it. So I think it's it's not easy to pin down. It could be said, yeah, it brings you in a certain filter. Mm-hmm. You only see what you already think it's normal. Mm-hmm. But it also so that uh, attention works with surprise and the new. 
Mm-hmm. And this is mostly the not normal. Or I would say um, what attracts your attention, I would say, is still within the normal because it's better than normal. So everything what we what we like, someone who's really really special or can run very fast or dance very good. That's still within the normal, so to say. It's just a plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the real not normal abject or things that we, uh, yeah, we then also connotate with negative things are the ones that are fall outside, fall, totally outside of what we expect. Um, yeah. yeah, but of course, that's, I think this kind of relation is something that needs to be worked out. And it's about everything that deviates in a negative way, also surprises in a positive way, needs attention. And everything we, we get used to is already self-evident and normal. Yeah. So Thanks. That's- this is really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are often times we feel wrong, we feel strange, we feel weird. And uh, yeah, it's a matter uh, sometimes of disposition, attention that we have uh, toward the expectations, toward what we can see or we cannot see in ourselves and others. Maren, uh, time flew by here and uh, we're already at my canonical last question, which is uh, a big question. Let's see uh, what kind of answer you find to that. What's the meaning of life for you? Do you think there is a meaning? What can Mm. you share with us? What did you gather so far? What's the meaning of life? Mm -hmm. Mm. It's the meaning you give it. I mean, uh, it's your task to give life a meaning and you can do that not on your own. So I think what... The meaning of life is something you have to work on or build or create together with loved ones, um, with friends. Um, yeah, to be. Because uh, let's say it that way. If no one in, in, in his or his own could say this is meaningful, it's only meaningful if someone else also recognizes it as meaningful. Otherwise, the whole term would make no sense. So this is why this is a necessarily an intersubjective thing and I think what has meaning for you in your life if you think about it always is related to an intersubjective connection with someone else yeah uh, in in a broad way so yeah if you say um, love has a meaning yeah you have to share love with a concrete you have to experience it if you say books and philosophy has a meaning you have to experience it and you do that with others and you discuss about it so you need others uh, to give life, uh, your life, what you do, what you think is worthy of you, a meaning. So I think the meaning of life is created together with friends. And for me, mo- one of my most important values would be friendship, e- even above love. Um, but that's just because I'm, I think I'm a very good friend and, and I still did not figure out if, if, if I'm good at love because it's so much more difficult. Um, yeah, I leave it at that. But I think this is this kind of, yeah, support, be honest, be straightforward with, um, be responsive to other people. And that's the meaning I would give it. And that's why I think um, philosophy can help, if it can help. You asked me that for well-being. So my first reaction was no, why should it? I mean, philosophy is not about making you feel better. It's about questioning and doubting and feel less 
less self-confident uh, and be modest. But if it could help you is because this kind of questioning or the philosophy as a productive form of self and we say um, self unsettlement or self insecurity to make yourself insecure in a productive way makes you also more open to different perspectives and that are what are different perspectives if perspective from others it makes you more responsive to the world and to others and I think in the end in the beginning this could make you feel could be really make you feel anxious and so but in the end I think this is what you uh, what gives meaning um, and what makes life meaningful mm -hmm. okay. this is really really beautiful what if uh, uh, these connections that give meaning to our lives are conflictual ones? I mean, you, you came up quite often uh, to, to the problem of having to be yourself in a family that didn't know who you were yet in, uh, while you were growing up. How, how can you give meaning when your loved ones are uh, somehow different from you or there is uh, some conflict? Did you find an answer to that yet? I think um, it, it gives even more meaning if you have a conflict because only in this conflict you find out what you value mm -hmm. and what you share actually because my parents love me. I love my parents and I know me a lot better because I'm also a person apart or besides philosophy. Um, you know, I have the same kind of uh, desire as my father, namely to be loved and to be recognized for what I'm doing. I have the same fears, uh, namely not be worthy and not, uh, um, yeah, I, 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 sometimes I'm too dependent on what others think of me and, and, and think of my work. So I see the same with my dad in totally different um, situations. Um, so you can be close on a totally different level to people which, with which you are in conflict. Mm -hmm. As long as you, um, as you recognize this, what you share within this conflict. And I, I doubt that you can have a real conflict with someone when you are not at the same time sharing something because why, it, why should you have a conflict then? I mean, the conflict and sympathy are is a two-sided two sides of the same point um, otherwise if uh, the other side is indifference if people are indifferent to you 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 don't have con or not what i would call a real conflict because for a conflict you have to actually confront yourself with someone else it's not like i'm here um, in my ideological group and i dismiss everything what your group said that's not a conflict um that's just, you, you don't even start to take others into account uh, or, yeah. But if you have a real conflict, there must be something that relates already. Um, and I think these kinds of conflicts with partners and friends makes you, it hurts a lot and it makes you insecure, but it could even be, uh, have the same function as philosophy. It makes you really, really insecure but it makes you also see where are your limits? What, where do you want to be at? And what, what's, what's worth? And what's the point that you want to make? Or why are you so hurt? Um, 
Thank you so much. Should be honored if someone uh, starts a real conflict with you. Yes, I think. Thanks for uh, all your wisdom today, for uh, sharing with us your time. It was a, a great pleasure to have you here. This podcast was funded by the Faculty Support Grant at CSU Spain. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes materials.